Let's take our Bibles and open to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and let's take some comfort in the Word of God today as the Bible describes to us the character of the righteous and how we can assure our hearts before Him so that we can be bold in the day of judgment. These sermons today should be comforting, not terrifying, unless you're living in sin. And then you should be terrified because there's no evidence of eternal life in you. None at all. Unless you repent and confess your sins to He who forgives so faithfully and so justly. 1 John chapter 5 and the 13th verse. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for this opening text. Notice that the apostle prayed that for those that believed on the name of the Son of God, that they would continue to believe on the name of the Son of God, because it wasn't a momentary decision of believing on the name of the Son of God that had anything to do with their eternal life, but to continue believing in it. And when he says the things that I have written unto you, you read last evening 1 John 3 and 1 John 4, both of which mention faith, but the great emphasis of those two chapters is love. Love of God and love of the brethren. Brethren, the Bible was not written to terrify us unless we need it. The Bible was written to comfort us. Comfort ye my people, the prophet wrote in Isaiah chapter 40. And so when we look at the verses that we're going to look at today, I want you to remember and to consider that the Bible is a note, a letter, an email, whatever you need to understand that the God of heaven, your creator, wrote you a few instructions. And those instructions, he is saying to us, in this part of your life, do it this way. You will be the happiest for it. It is what works. It is what glorifies me. And it is the evidence that when I return to this earth, through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I will take you home to heaven with me. It is when, when, when and when to do it God's way. This world is sick. This world is so dysfunctional in every aspect, whether it is civil government and deficit spending and all the other errors they make, or whether it's in marriage or child training or any other aspect, they show their, they are bankrupt when it comes to wisdom and understanding. And so we're going to be looking at things today. God's laid out commandments in the Bible. Those commandments are not to punish us. You know, you look at the Sabbath day and the strict rules that God had for the Sabbath. And he said, Jesus taught very clearly, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. There is wisdom in getting every seventh day off from our ordinary work duties. And so I want you to be thinking about that as we go through some of these sections of Scripture and some of these passages 
for you to realize God has said, in this part of your life, do it this way. It will work. It will honor my truth. It will glorify me. And it is the evidence that when I come back, you are mine. And I will take you to heaven with me. And we want to have a fearful and a rejoicing and comforting outlook toward these things that the Bible tells us. It's a normal thing to ask, am I one of God's elect? It's a normal thing to ask, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm not going to spend eternity in the lake of fire after my death rattle? And every one of you will have a death rattle. And it is racing forward in our lives. How can I know that? It's a normal thing to ask. God knew we would ask that, and so God answered it. Look at the verse that I just read to you. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And when you go back through chapters 3 and 4, as I hope you did last evening, you saw where he would say, He that doeth this has passed from death unto life. Because the evidence is given to us in 1 John. He wants to comfort us. Turn a few pages back to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. These verses are verses that you want to remember for yourself, and you want to remember to be able to share them with others. And of course, there is a very extensive outline that will be available very shortly after today's preaching, by the grace of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 gets right to the heart of the matter instead of reading the full context, which we will later, the Lord willing. Wherefore the rather, brethren... Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Do you want to know you're going to heaven? Do you want to know that you're never going to fall? Do you want to know that you're never going to be cast in the lake of fire? Then there is a list of eight things in this passage that you better be doing. And you're supposed to be giving all diligence to it. It is amazing what people get distracted with in their lives. Out of that 168 hours in a week that God gives us, We get so distracted, they get so distracted in so many foolish endeavors. This ought to be one that we are giving all diligence toward. This involves whether you are going to heaven or to hell. This involves what evidence you have of eternal life. Some decision for Jesus is not taught anywhere in the Bible. That is a man-made idea. And it's just getting worse and worse with the Lordship controversy and other insane modifications of that false doctrine so that it is so pitiful today. Look at the text. It says, if ye do these things, it is a plural number of things, you've got to do them, and if you do them, you shall never fall. And notice what it says in the next verse. For so, in this way, so's that little adverb that tells us in the way specified or described, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead of just sneaking in while the door is closing, the door is going to be flung wide open, and the angels of God are going to welcome us with open arms into heaven. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you do these things, if you make your calling and election sure, 
And those eight things are listed in verses 5 through 8 of this chapter. You should remember this passage. You should use it for yourself. You should use it for others. You know, I am periodically mocked by people who write our website that don't believe in election, and they'll try to make fun of us and me by writing and asking, if you believe in election, then how do you know you're one of God's elect? Ha <laughs> ha. Well, you morons, if you'd ever read the Bible instead of John 3.16, if you'd have read the Bible instead of only knowing one verse in the whole Bible, right. maybe you would have figured out that God did write some scriptures so that we can know we're His elect. Amen. This is one of them. You can make your calling and election sure. I want to be sure that I'm one of God's elect. Amen. So, the eight things that are listed in verses 5 through 8 should be important to me. They should be important to you. Those eight things are starting with faith. We are to add things to our faith. Just having faith is no better than a devil. The devils believe God, and the devils believe about the Lord Jesus Christ better than anyone in here. They tremble at the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 2 and verse 19 teaches us that. Once we start with faith, we add to that faith virtue. That is the strength of goodness and nobility. And to virtue, knowledge. We continue to increase in knowing about God and His will for our lives. And to knowledge, temperance, which is self-discipline and self-control and maturity. And to temperance, patience, which is cheerfully enduring negative events. And to patience, godliness, which is acting like God and according to His revealed character. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, which is how kind we are to all those around us. And to brotherly kindness, we add charity, which is mercifully doing good to others. There's eight things. I love the Word of God. Amen. How can I know I'm one of God's elect? Second Peter 1, 5 through 11. Yes. Thank you, Lord. God did not write the Bible to scare us. God wrote the Bible to comfort us. God wrote the Bible to tell us what He has planned for us, what Jesus Christ did for us, and how we can know we're included. And how we can live a life where we're doing the right things in every choice in, in our lives instead of ending up in the dysfunction of the wicked of this world. It's win-win-win when you do it God's way. Let's remember that the Arminian scheme of a little decision for Jesus is nowhere taught in the Bible. You know, this idea of going forward, nowhere in the Bible. No one ever asked anyone. No one ever told anyone to go forward. In the Bible. It's, it's the Arminian idea of trusting in their own decision. It's doctrinal heresy and it's delusional. It's a pleasure to meet people in my life that once they have heard about election and predestination, they love to testify to me how that it increased their assurance of eternal life instead of trusting in their own little decision. Because anyone that is honest, anyone that doesn't lie to themselves, knows that their little decision to trust in Jesus goes like this. Because day, day by day they go up and down in their love of Christ. I don't want to be trusting in my decision. I want to be trusting in His decision because He never changes. And it's comforting to find people when they're converted to the truth find greater assurance of eternal life than trusting in their little ridiculous decision that they wrote down somewhere in their Bible. That is no evidence of eternal life. It's not taught anywhere. You know, there are people today that are going to be teaching that you have to invite Jesus into your heart in order to be saved, and they are using Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, and that passage is not even talking about salvation at all. It's written to a church of people that are already saved. They don't understand their Bibles. 
They just want little sound bites so they can go get little kitties and think they can promise them eternal life. The Bible is going to give us passage after passage, dozens of passages after dozens of passages that tell us how we can know we have eternal life. And we've just looked at two of them. And you read 1 John 3 and 4 last evening, and I just showed you the eight things here in this passage. Believing and calling upon the name of the Lord are worthless without works following. Look at Matthew chapter 7. I just want to get this out of the way because so many of us have grown up with the idea that if uh, you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, then you're going to heaven no matter how you live. Show me. Find me find me one verse that says that. There isn't a verse in the Bible that says that. Right. It's a man-made idea of making it so easy to get saved and nobody has to ever live a holy life for God. We just heard Psalm 99 explain to us that our God is holy. I'll, I'll tell you something. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. How do you like that one? You think your little accepting Jesus is going to bypass the holiness of God? You're wrong. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Nowhere is that taught. Nowhere did the Apostle Paul ever write somebody and said and say, you know that decision you made for Jesus? That is going to get you into heaven. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount taught this. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Go ahead, call on the Lord all you want. Jesus said, that is an evidence. Jesus said, that doesn't cut it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. See it, there's some doing. There's some doing. We don't earn our way to heaven But the way we know we're going to heaven is by doing the things God has told us to do. There is no way you can get around that. And they all want to get around it because they want to have an evangelistic service where they make getting saved, that's their terminology, it's not found in the Bible, getting saved like that, as easy as falling off a log. Then they can go on to the next batch by having another motorcycle lock in or another rock concert for young people, and get another hundred people saved because they made some little emotional decision for Jesus. It's not taught in the Bible. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and this is the one who's going to be sitting on His white throne of judgment, and we're going to stand before Him begging for eternal life. Uh, We won't be begging. We'll know that we have it because we're going to meet Him with confidence, especially if we pay attention today. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but here's the ones that will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So like last Sunday and on Wednesday night, I followed up what I preached last Sunday about sins of the heart, keeping our hearts with all diligence, making sure we never think a negative, bitter, bitter, hateful, sinful thought about anything or anyone. Because God commands that in the Bible. So if God commands it in the Bible, it's one of His commandments, we want to keep those commandments and do the will of our Father which is in heaven. Look at Luke 6.46 on this subject of calling on the name of the Lord. Luke 6. Luke 6 and verse 46. And why do ye call me Lord, Lord? Jesus wants to know, why are you using that word about Him? 
Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's worthless. It offends me. The Lord Jesus Christ does not want you calling Him Lord if you're not going to obey Him as if He were your Lord. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Oh, these verses should comfort us. Is there... You know, if you haven't been doing the will of your Father which is in heaven, they shouldn't comfort you at all. But you can, you know how fast you can make it right with Almighty God? Because He is faithful and because He is just, both of which are unlike any one you have ever met, especially yourself. Confess your sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repudiate them in your mind. Repent of them. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Wow, what a wonderful doctrine of salvation and how we can clear the slate so easily and go forward. Acts, John chapter 8, it says in verse 30, Jesus is speaking, as He spake these words, many believed on Him. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, You can know that you're saved no matter how you live the rest of your lives. Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So these people, though they were believing on Jesus in some respect, they weren't free, they were in bondage to their sins, and if they did not continue in his word and learn His Word to become free, they would remain bound in their sins. Now Jesus poked them with these words because the Jews considered themselves free. They answered Him in verse 33, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? See, Jesus has poked them. And they're offended at what he, how He poked them. And if you were to read just 11 more verses you would find out that they tried to kill him. These are people that believed on Jesus. But as soon as you push them with the doctrine of the Bible and living a changed life and being made free by conforming their lives to the teaching of Jesus Christ, they want to kill him. Verse 44, this is Jesus speaking to them just 11 verses later. Mm -hmm. Ye are of your father the devil. How's that? Oh, these Arminians just make me so sick. They have watered the gospel down to where it is nothing. You know, somebody comes forward, which is unknown in the Bible, unknown, invites Jesus into their heart, unknown in the Bible, and then they're told, you should write this date down because I can guarantee that you're saved. And no matter how you live and no matter what happens, you're going to go to heaven if you were to go out of here and get killed. That is not taught anywhere in the Bible. It's nauseating. Because it doesn't change lives and it doesn't require change lives. It doesn't require holy living. It doesn't require you looking like a Christian. It doesn't require you admiring the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't require you staying in a state of belief. It doesn't require adding anything to faith. It's worthless. And so we can just pretty much forget all of that stuff. When did the Apostle Paul, if we were to pretend we were Arminians for a moment, When did the Apostle Paul invite Jesus into his heart? Now, he didn't do any such thing, but let's pretend he did. When did he do it? On the road to 
Damascus. You know, Paul gave that testimony of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Who art thou, Lord? As that light, brighter than the noonday sun, shone down upon him, knocked him to the ground. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. He gives that testimony three times. When Paul gets to the end of his life, do you think he's remembering back to the Damascus road and inviting Jesus into his heart as the basis for him getting into heaven? I'm going to show you what Paul was thinking about when he got to the end of his life to know whether he was going to see Jesus or not. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's the last chapter that Paul wrote in the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He knows he's about to die, and so he's going to explain where his confidence was to know that he was going to be in heaven when he died. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. For I am now ready to be offered. See, he knows he's about to die. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I made a decision for Jesus on the road to Damascus. Does it say that in verse 7? Not a chance. I have fought a good fight. He has fought against the world. He has fought against the lust of his flesh. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I did everything God wanted me to accomplish in my life. I have kept the faith. Not I believe the faith. I have kept it. I have held and maintained a strict apostolic doctrine for the entirety of my life. Henceforth, as a result of those three things of verse 7, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing." See, there's no, there's no decision for Jesus. There's no inviting Him into your heart. Both concepts are unknown in the Bible. There's no verse. You can go home and look to your heart's content. There's no verse that teaches either thing. The apostle said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, what's coming next for me is a crown of righteousness that I will receive. And do you know how we can be along with the apostle Paul? We can fight a good fight. We can finish our course, and we can keep the faith, and we can do what verse 8 says, love His appearing. When you love His appearing, you despise being left here on this little planet. And so there's a, a comparison comes up in your life. I'd rather be in heaven than I would be on earth. I love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to Him coming in flaming fire and vengeance on this earth to right all the wrongs. Well, you better be living righteously to meet that Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul appealed to. Right. Oh, there's so many more things that could be said. There is an extensive outline on this subject. I want to remind you that God has been very merciful to us in explaining the doctrine of salvation to us in such a way that it reconciles the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Amen. There are so many... And like these decisionalists, like these Arminians that put all the responsibility for salvation on man, whether a person gets saved or not is entirely up to man. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are basically jokes. Because that what makes a difference between one person and another person is what this person does. You know, that put, that's man's responsibility. 
And they just hate the sovereignty of God to think that God may have made some choices that involved them and their future destiny. They hate it. But then there are those that so exalt the sovereignty of God, they have no place for the obedience of man. So we've got these two ditches. And the world tells us, the world of theologians tells us, it's impossible to reconcile the two things. They can't be reconciled. Well, they're reconciled this way. Salvation is of the Lord. The only way you can know it is to bring forth good works in your life. That is, that's what the Bible teaches. God chose a people before the world began to be His people. And He will save every single one of them without the loss of one. But how do they know that they are His elect? By living obedient, righteous, and holy lives. That is the ultimate in the sovereignty of God for determining the destiny of all men. That is the ultimate in the responsibility of man to ever know that they've been saved. You ought to hear a typical decisional Baptist. All you got to do is believe. All you got to do is make a decision for Jesus right now and believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you know what verse they'll, one of the verses they'll quote for that? Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But do you know what the next verse says? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Right. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And they just crumble to pieces. Well, it can't mean that. It can't mean that. I'm a Baptist and Baptists don't believe that baptism gets you saved, so it can't mean that. And do you know what we say? It means exactly that. The evidence of eternal life is believing the gospel and being baptized in Jesus' name and repenting of your sins and bringing forth good works and laying hold of eternal life in all the ways the Bible tells us to. All of that goes together because all of it is an evidence of eternal life that God worked in us because we are working out the salvation that God worked in us. God is sovereign for having saved us on the inside, and then we work it out. Oh, Lord, thank you for reconciling the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man for us little babes. They can go to seminary all they want. We will come to your word, and we will humble ourselves before it. When it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, I would not want to be a believer and not be baptized if I had the opportunity to be baptized because I am telling the Lord Jesus Christ that His doctrine of baptism isn't important enough for me to fulfill it or obey it. Now for you children in here that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the pastor doesn't baptize little children because he's not an infant baptizer, your desire to be baptized is all that the Lord expects of you right now. You just keep believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, obeying your parents and doing everything else that you know you ought to be doing to show the work of regeneration in your lives. I want to talk for a minute to you people that have, that were born and raised in a godly family and you heard the truth your whole life and you may not have an event to look back to. I am so sorry that there are these people out there that want to look back to some little event they did and think that that saves them. And what it does is it confounds and confuses those that read the Bible because they can't see people looking back to some huge, extraordinary, emotional event. I want to comfort you a little bit. The inane yapping of those trusting decisional regeneration may cause you to doubt your experience. 
You know, if you read Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26 about the Apostle Paul, that was a pretty dramatic experience. You know, the Lord shined from heaven and knocked Paul down and those men that were with him and Jesus spoke to him personally. That's pretty dramatic. And it's mentioned three times in the Bible, but that's an exception. That's an exception, and Paul needed that exception to be able to testify to both Gentiles and Jews his lofty office of being the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's why that happened. Now, can you think of some other dramatic ones? Was there a little man in a tree one time where Jesus passed by and looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus comes down and the whole crowd starts to murmur because they know that Zacchaeus is a bad man. And the bad man says, Lord, I sell half my goods this day to give to the poor. And if I have wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. And Jesus said today, salvation has come to this house. I wonder why Jesus didn't say to him, Zacchaeus, we don't care about your money and we don't care about people you've wronged. Will you invite me into your heart? Why didn't Jesus say that? Because that's not a Bible doctrine. What is a Bible doctrine? Repent and bring forth fruits Meet for repentance. And Zacchaeus brought forth repentance. Life-changing repentance. Lord, half of everything I own. My balance sheet, I cut it in half right now, and I give half to the poor. If anyone has been wronged by me, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus called that salvation. Now those are pretty dramatic. When we have a Philippian jailer springing, springing in, you know, should I try it? Springing in to a cell with Paul and Silas, Falling down on his knees, he's got his sword in his throat, he's about to kill himself. What must I do to be saved? That's pretty dramatic. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Did uh, the jailer get born again before, during, or after his little episode on the floor? Before. The Bible teaches us that very plainly. God had already saved that man or he wouldn't have come in and asked any such thing. He had already cut his head off in his own room. He had heard Paul and Silas singing and so forth. Those are pretty dramatic. Do you want to see some others, though, that aren't dramatic? I've got an Ethiopian eunuch bouncing along in his chariot and he's listening to Alexander Scorby. Alexander gets to Isaiah 53. He doesn't know what Alexander's talking about in Isaiah 53. And all of a sudden there's this man beside him and the man says, Understandest thou what Scorby's reading to you? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And the man says, well, let me get up there and help you. So Philip gets up in there and helps him, and they're looking at Isaiah 53, and and the eunuch says, Philip, you know, I've read this a couple of times. I've heard Scorby read it to me a couple more times. Is this prophet talking about himself or about another man? And what does it say next? Philip preached to him Jesus. Amen. He hears a little bit about Jesus from Isaiah 53, and all of a sudden, there are some rushes that pop up out of the sand, and there's a little oasis, there's a palm tree. The the eunuch slams on the binders on his chariot and says, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip says, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Boy, they stopped that chariot. They both got down into that water in the middle of a desert in an oasis. They both went down into the water. Philip baptized that eunuch by immersion. They both came up out of the water. 
Philip disappeared and showed up in the city of Azotus. The Lord just moved him, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. But now I want to back up. That was just reading the Bible and going to church and hearing the explanation about Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is that pretty simple? I know I made it dramatic, and I shouldn't have done that. It defeated my purpose. It was dramatic about that oasis popping up in the middle of the desert and him using it for baptism. But that was just reading the Bible and a man explaining the Bible that another man died and that other man was Jesus. And he died on the cross for the sins of his people. And he believed on him. There was a woman that went out to make prayer in the city of Philippi out by a riverside. They didn't have a synagogue in that city. Her name was Lydia. She was a seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God. So she, she already knew about God. She already worshipped God. Are you all with me, you people that have grown up in a family where you've heard the truth your whole lives and you wonder why you haven't had a jump out of the sycamore tree experience? Here's this woman. She worships God. She's out there with these women. They pray. They know that prayer is pleasing to God, so they're praying together. Here comes this man that sits down. His name is Paul. He preaches to them the gospel, and the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart, that she attended unto those things which Paul spoke. She listened. I I understand that. Yes, I get that. I believe that. I believe that. And she was baptized. Acts 16, 13 through 15. Is there anything dramatic there? Well, there is unseen. The Lord opened her heart. Right. And you say to me, well, how, do you know that the, how do I know that the Lord's opened my heart? Do you attend to the preaching of God's Word? That doesn't mean attendance. That means when you're here, when you're here are you listening? Right. Are you appreciating what you're hearing? Are you, are you taking a point made and adding another point to it and seeing the conclusion that's being made from the pulpit? I believe that. I agree with that. That is the truth. She attended unto the things that were spoken. Look at Acts chapter 17. I know about you that have grown up believing in the existence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ your whole life because that's the way I grew up. You know, there was no bolt of lightning that knocked me off my motorcycle or anything like that. But boy, I can sure tell you that there were some times when I didn't care about the preaching of God's Word, and there were some times that I did care about the preaching of God's Word. And I can read about Lydia and know exactly what's being described there. And I can read about the eunuch and and know exactly what's being described there. And there's nothing dramatic, but it's just the evidence of eternal life. There doesn't need to be a bolt of lightning from heaven. There doesn't need to be a sycamore tree experience because I'm giving you examples of great saints that are recorded in the pages of Scripture for you that have not had such an event to know that you're still showing the same evidence of eternal life. How many doubt whether Lydia is in heaven or not? Anyone doubt whether the eunuch's there? I mean, he's one of he's in my top twenty to see when I get there. They're there. Acts chapter seventeen. Watch this carefully with me. I'm trying to comfort you right now. And I am, I am not making very much progress. 
And I had every intention that this would be a one Sunday only encouragement of your faith and comforting of your souls. And it may be more than that. And I don't really care as long as I can comfort your souls and encourage you to know that you have eternal life. If you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not, I want to get you to repent of your sins and to come clean with him and to come to terms with the Lord of glory. He'll forgive. He abundantly pardons in a way that is described as his ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts as the heaven is higher than the earth. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. This is after the Philippian jailer. So they come to the little town of Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these people in Berea, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. Notice this chain of events. They went to church. They had probably been going to church their whole lives. They're in Berea. They hear Paul preach something new and different to them. And they went. They received it with a ready mind. I just want the truth. Just give me the truth, they're thinking inside. Paul preaches to them. They say, that's new. That is exciting if that's true. And they go home, and they search the Scriptures daily. So they became Bible students. You know, he said something about a chapter in Isaiah that prophesied of a man being cut off for the sins of his people. So they went and read Isaiah 53. You know, he mentioned something about God setting his king upon his holy hill of Zion. He's, did, didn't he say it was in the second Psalm? And so they went to check. You know what? Look at it. Can you see a father leading devotions in his family? Look at it. There it is. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so, and what was the result? They believed. There's no sycamore tree. There's no bolt of lightning. There's no light brighter than the noonday sun shining down upon them. There's no voice thundering from heaven. All there is is a little obscure man from Jerusalem standing up in the synagogue that day and saying a few things they had never heard. They received it. They went home and studied it out. They believed. And do you know what happened as soon as they believed? They were baptized. Is that comforting to any of you? It's comforting to me. I can remember, I can remember some times in my life where instead of reading the Executioner novel series or Lewis L'Amour Westerns or memorizing motorcycle statistics, a precious little man in my home church gave me four books to read in my late teenage years that helped change my life. And these are, these are new things. And I went home and searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And I believed. And I'm thankful. Amen. I'm thankful for my entire life. God's used it all. I hope that I can be profitable to some of you. You're in Acts chapter 17. I want to take you further. Down to verse 32. The Apostle Paul is at Mars Hill. The, uh, the place where the philosophers met and debated philosophy in the city of Athens, which was of the nation of Greece, which was the center of learning of the world. This is where Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and the other Greek philosophers lived and taught. 
Now Paul has just preached them a short sermon because they dragged him to Mars Hill. They wanted to hear the new things that he was mentioning in their marketplace because he had mentioned the resurrection of the dead. And so he preaches them a little sermon. He's very he's very uh, accommodating to their ignorance. These I love that. Did you did you understand what I said? He was very accommodating to their ignorance. These are the greatest philosophers, the most educated people on earth at the time. And he accommodates himself to them by quoting one of their minor poets and using the simplest of terms to talk to them. But then he reaches his climax, and the climax is, this Jesus that I've just told you about that was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead to prove to you that he's coming back to burn up Athens and judge all of you. I love his invitation. It's be- you want me to read it to you? I want to read it to you. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance, the kind of ignorance you Greek philosophers have, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead." This is not assurance of eternal life. This is, assur- this is assurance of eternal judgment. And how is he given assurance? He's raised Jesus Christ from the dead after this world crucified him. Verse 32, that was the end. Verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. How be it? Certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The Apostle Paul lays that little sermon on. These philosophers are just sitting there and they hear things they've never heard before. And some mocked and some said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And some followed Paul out of that assembly. And we've got a few names. We've got Dionysius the Areopagite, converted by the preaching. Nothing dramatic. If you read the sermon, there's nothing dramatic at all. It's just common sense. God that made the heavens and the earth does not dwell in your little rinky-dink Athens temples. Can you, Guys, can you figure that one out? He just reasons from a few points of doctrine like that, and he reaches the Lord Jesus Christ. God's appointed a man that is going to judge the world And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And some mocked, and some said, that's interesting. We'll hear, we'll hear a little bit more about this later. But Dionysius got up and walked out, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There's nothing dramatic there. There was a time in their lives where God arranged for a preacher to be there. And that's why it says how beautiful are the feet of them that preach good tidings of, of glad things and bring it to people. Dionysius, Damaris, and the others were sitting there and they heard something totally new. And God opened their hearts and God opened their minds so that they realized what Paul just said, that God that created the heavens and the earth doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. That's ob- That makes sense. And as he worked forward through these verses here, his sermon begins in verse 22. It only lasts a little while, 
And he explains to them that even from their own poets, if they would just reason correctly, there's a creator God that needs to be worshipped that they don't have in one of their temples. And that that idol that they have that was made to the unknown God, Paul said, I'm explaining to you the God you don't know. But you know there's a God different from all your deities that you worship in Athens. I'm explaining him to you. And he has appointed a man to come and judge the world. And some followed. There's nothing dramatic. Brethren, has the Lord ever spoke to you by his preached word? Amen. Not to where, when you finished the sermon, you walked out and you said, that is the truth. I'm going to obey that truth. That is the evidence of eternal life. Those that mocked, it was the evidence of damnation. Those that said, hey, that was kind of interesting. We'll have you back to talk again next month when we have a, you know, an open podium. That's the evidence of damnation. To hear about the Creator God of Heaven and His Son Jesus Christ and to get up and separate yourself from other people and say, I want to follow Him. That is the evidence of eternal life. When you look back and read the Old Testament, I'm still speaking to you that I want to comfort. When you go back and you read the Old Testament, can you find any dramatic conversion experience by the Old Testament saints? Abel? Seth? Enos? Noah? Abraham? Somebody will say, yes, Abraham. Genesis 15.6. No, you're, you're a decade too late. Abraham was already following the Lord long before Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 happened for a little illustration for the Apostle Paul to use in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. That's why it happened. And remember, he wasn't really justified until another 30 years later when he tried to offer Isaac on an altar for sacrifice because that's what James teaches us. Nope, that's not dramatic. Abraham was already following God long before Genesis 15. How about David? How about the prophets? We don't read anything about it. They grew up. They grew up in a nation where the nation and the church were the same thing. The nation of Israel was the church of the Old Testament as it's described in Acts chapter 7. They grew up in it. They believed it from their childhood. So we don't read about dramatic experiences. So I'm trying to comfort all of you that the majority of the conversions in the Bible grew up the same way that grew up in Christian homes, that grew up in Bible-believing homes, that grew up in Jehovah-worshipping homes, they grew up that way all their lives. But, but, did you hear that? There is a but. But every one of you that grew up in a Christian home cannot take consolation or comfort in your parents' faith. Right. You personally must come to terms yourself and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ yourself by faith and say, I personally believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Savior of men, and the Lord of glory, and I will follow Him in baptism. I will repent of my sins. I will separate from those that don't believe that, and I will follow Jesus. That, That string of events and that string of commitments in your heart does not cause salvation to happen. That string of events and things that happen 
is the result of salvation. God works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and then we work it out. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. And we don't have invitations in this church because invitations aren't taught in the Bible. And no one until 1850 had ever imagined something as ridiculous as an invitation. Those invitations, with the proper music playing, you know, get people to come forward and then they're told they're saved because they came forward. That's not taught in the Bible. But what is taught in the Bible is once we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are baptized and we repent in conjunction with both of those. Then we are supposed to bring forth good works and live a life of faith and holiness and lay hold of eternal life by living a conformed, a transformed life that's conformed to Christ and transformed from and away from the world. It doesn't have to be a Damascus Road experience. That was an exception. It doesn't have to be a sycamore tree experience. That was an exception. I have shared with you some of the ordinary, which are, is the general rule of the Bible, conversions. When you hear the preaching of God's Word, do you love hearing about Jesus? Do you attend unto the things that are spoken? Do you go home and look them up and see it on the printed page of what you heard preached and rejoice in your heart? That is the evidence of eternal life. Those are the descriptions that we have had here of several in the New Testament, all in the Old Testament that we are told about. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word as we continue later after our break in considering how can we know that we are saved. What does the Bible say about the assurance of eternal life? Amen. Amen.